This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, welcome to another edition of Common Threads. You know, I recall several times in the past when people of various religions, including Catholics, would snicker at the idea of going to a priest for sex advice. They would reason that it would be absurd to get counsel from someone who viewed the subject of sex merely as an abstract idea. Sure, he could spout off all the church rules about it, but then again, weren't all those rules all made by male celibates? Well, there are a couple of answers to that question. The sages of all religions have said over the centuries that wisdom transcends experience. The other answer is that if you're lucky, you might be able to find a priest like Father Robert Francoeur. Actually, most people call him Dr. Francoeur, but he is a Roman Catholic priest who can actually talk about sex from experience. The reason being, he's married. If you're under the impression that one must be a celibate to be a member of the Roman clergy, you'll want to listen to this. But more important than what uh, Father Francoeur does in his personal life is what he does in the area of academics, which is sex. A bit of background on the gentleman. He was born and raised in Detroit, graduating from my alma mater, the University of Detroit. Due to circumstances that we'll talk about later, after his ordination, he fell in love with a woman who is his wife now. He married her and was able to continue in the priesthood to this day. Sexuality has always been his specialty. He's written several books on the subjects, including his latest project, The Encyclopedia of Sex, where he compares the attitudes and practices of sex in 51 different countries. He's also involved in a pretty lusty website, www.theposition.com. And we now welcome to our program, Common Threads, Dr. Francoeur. Good, Good to be with you, Fred. Thank you. Uh, now, we have to get this out of the way, okay. because I'm sure many people are dying to know, how were you able to remain a Roman Catholic priest and be married? Okay, I was uh, ordained for the Diocese of Steubenville, Ohio, in 1958, and about eight years later, I met Anna, and I talked to my bishop, who agreed that I was working in the university ministry, and there was no problem with my continuing to work in that area and be a married priest. So we sent two petitions over to Rome, and both of them came back denied for lack of sufficient reason. And then the bishop said, well, you know, let's keep it simple. Let's just get married, send the marriage certificate to the bishop, and the bishop will send it over to Rome, and we'll ask them to recognize the marriage, period, and let me continue functioning. And at that time, a lot of priests, this is 1966, 67, a lot of priests were uh, asking for permission to be laicized and get married. I was asking to be married, but not laicized. And, of course, they were rubber stamping them, and my came through as requested, approved as requested. And once having made that mistake, they're not going to, admit they made the mistake, so I exist out there in a little limbo. Any idea how many uh, priests 
are in your position? A lot of them. Uh, my bishop was very understanding and sent me all the documents. So as soon as I saw the official rescript in Latin from Rome, I called him up and I said, what does this mean? And he said, just exactly what you said it meant. You can continue functioning. And that's where it stood ever since. So I work, you know, sometimes with Lutheran bishops, uh, sometimes with Methodist ministers, sometimes with the Episcopalian clergy, with Roman Catholic clergy, wherever there's an interest in the connection between sexuality and spirituality and religion. And uh, just briefly, in what part of your life do you act as a Catholic priest? Do you do you perform wedding ceremonies? Uh, no, I. We have. Uh, there's a nationwide organization called Corpus, a group of married priests. There's also uh, rent a rent a priest organization that uh, advertises uh, in this area and around the country for people who want to have a religious wedding or funeral and can't get it from their regular church. Um, they'll provide that service. I don't. I will say Mass with uh, my fellow priests when it's in a congenial setting, and I'm comfortable with it. Uh, I do counseling. I do not hear confessions. Uh, I'm just curious, why don't you hear confessions? Well, (laughs) frankly, most of the time, uh, students and others who have uh, dropped in to talk uh, it seemed like confession in the beginning, but then it turned into, uh, Father, I just wanted to talk to somebody about this that understood this thing. You know, this is really complicated, and, you know, it's a, this isn't really a confession. It's, it's just I needed somebody to talk to that would understand. And I said, fine, that's great. And I know a lot of, uh, a couple of my classmates from seminary days uh, uh, describe their hearing confessions this way. People just come by and and want to talk and find out what Father thinks about this or that issue. Gotcha. Let's talk a little bit about some of your former books. In 1970, you uh, published uh, Utopian Motherhood, New Trends in Human Reproduction. Was that your first book? Uh, No, I actually, I wrote three books on evolution and theology before that. Uh, Utopian Motherhood was... uh, 1970, and it was a pioneering uh, history and summary of uh, the reproductive technologies that were coming down the track in the very near future, and did come down, actually. Within five, ten years, we had embryo transplant surrogate mothers and all kinds of you know, reproductive and infertility technologies. Right. I I noticed reading that uh, they were referred to as outlandish forecasts. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, I would, you know, I was crazy. And yet, you know, seven years later, we had the world's first embryo transplant. And uh, every one of my other predictions except male pregnancy and human cloning have come about. But at the time, I was crazy. So would you say that uh, male pregnancy, is you can still see some somewhere in the future? It'll, it'll come. It'll come. It, it's, it would involve an abdominal pregnancy, implantating, implanting an embryonic mass in the lining of the abdomen of a male and letting it go full term, which would be risky. 
abdominal pregnancies in women are risky, but it could be done. What about uh, some of these forecasts, for instance, surrogate motherhood? Uh, what did you see in 1968-69 that led you to, to predict this? Well, they were doing embryo transplant with a lot of animals, uh, different animal species, and quite successfully, particularly in the area of um, endangered animal species. And I said, you know, it's not going to be long before that technology that's been proven safe with uh, endangered animal species gets applied on the human level. Because if we have infertile bongo antelopes in the Milwaukee Zoo and we solve their problem by doing embryo transplant, uh, it'll be done for humans. And your uh, previous books, oh, I was not aware of the one on evolution. What was that called? Uh, I did one called Evolving World, Converging Man, and another one, Perspectives in Evolution, and a third one on the uh, thought of Teilhard de Chardin, the French Jesuit anthropologist who uh, synthesized evolution in theology in the Catholic tradition. Well, you know, I wasn't really prepared to talk about uh, evolution on the program because I wasn't aware of those books, but you, you've piqued my interest. Uh, what are the main themes of, of those books? Well, the main theme was that there really is no contradiction between science and evolution and religion, uh, that the sacred text of the Bible and so forth that talk about creation, talk about it from a, a religious viewpoint, uh, trying to explain the position of man in this world, why we are here, what, uh, what our nature is, and so forth. And so we have a lot of archetypes and um, mythic super stories that, like Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, that on a very spiritual level, explain or try to explain the unexplainable. And uh, as long as they're taken in that context and not as literal stories of creation in seven days and so forth, uh, there's no conflict between evolution and the Bible. But now, this wasn't a breakthrough, am I correct? Oh, no, no. Uh, when I was at St. Vincent's in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, taking my theology... I used to spend all my Wednesday afternoons over in the college biology lab with Father Ed and Father Max and uh, the other biologists who had fought the battle over whether you could be a good Catholic and still believe in evolution, and they fought those battles in the 1920s at Columbia University, and then when they came back to the monastery. So I was just putting it in popular at that time, there was a lot of interest in the uh, evolutionary synthesis of Teilhard de Chardin, and I was just uh, at the center of that particular uh, interesting development, and that has influenced all of my thinking since then on marriage, on sex, on religion, you know, looking at uh, how marriage has changed, because at the end of Utopian Motherhood, I, uh, I said, okay, I'm a biologist. I believe in evolution and the survival of species that adapt to their environment when the environment changes. All of this biological reproductive technology, genetic engineering, cloning, and uh, surrogate mothers and so forth, is 
changing our environment, the way we experience uh, parenting, for instance. You know, we have a genetic father, a genetic mother, uh, a biological mother and father, and a social father and mother. The kid could have six parents. And that changes, you know, in surrogate mothers, if it's my uh, mother or my mother-in-law who carries an artificially inseminated embryo, you know, what happens to aunts and uncles and, and all those traditional relationships? They change. And so my point in the next book, Eve's New Rib, was, hey, what about how has marriage and parenthood and family and sex changed in uh, two or three thousand years of Judeo-Christian tradition. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU. The program is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and today's guest is Dr. Robert Francourt. We're talking about sexuality, religion, evolution, and a number of things, I'm sure, before uh, this conversation ends. So the question is... Does religion and morality affect biology, or is it always the other way around? Uh, it's both ways. I think scientists are influenced by their religious beliefs or lack of religious beliefs. Uh, theologians, uh, in the past, they have very much tended to try and avoid uh, dialoguing with the scientists. Uh, mainly because a lot of them felt that they had the answer in the literal interpretation of the Bible, and they didn't need to know about the Big Bang or relativity or evolution. And if evolution seemed to contradict their biblical interpretations, then the scientists were wrong. Um, but I think today, for instance, in the area of sexuality, there's a lot of cooperation between historians who are looking at how marriage and sex have changed in the past. Uh, the psychologists today who have much better understanding of, for instance, gay orientation and its origins. Uh, you know, are we, are people born gay or lesbian or bisexual or heterosexual? Uh, there's a lot that the psychologists and the neurobiologists and the geneticists can help theologians and church leaders understand about how do you know how are we going to handle gay and lesbian unions or marriages in this country are we going to recognize them or not yeah well let's talk about um, the good old-fashioned nuclear family <laughs> uh, <laughs> it never existed it you never was let, you never even let me get it out <laughs> right. Well, let's let's talk about it. Is it a myth? Uh, very definitely. I mean, you go back to Ozzie and Harriet and leave it to Beaver, and at that time in the 1950s, which a lot of people hold up as, you know, the 30s, 40s, and 50s were conservative. We had our stable families. Women were at home uh, taking care of the children and the house, and the husband was the breadwinner. And the world was a like a Garden of Eden. Uh and we turned to, you know, Doris Day and Leave It to Beaver and uh, I Love Lucy and so forth. But at that time, we had one of our highest rates ever of unmarried mothers giving birth to children. 
we had technical virgins, girls who did everything except vaginal intercourse and therefore could claim to be virgins when they got married. But uh, teenage pregnancy was very high, the highest it's ever been, and uh, there was a lot of discontent among the women, which, you know, a decade later gave birth to uh, the feminist movement. Right. People tend to think that, uh, for instance, uh, the, the loving generation, the, the hippies, just were created out of a vacuum. Oh, they weren't. They grew out of uh, a lot of things. Uh, for one thing, uh, the 50s and 60s were an era when adolescents really came into their own in this country. Uh, before that, kids, you know, in my father's generation, kids went to work when they graduated grade school, if they were lucky to graduate from grade school. And so after the Second World War and things came back to somewhat normal, whatever that is, um, we, we couldn't absorb all the kids and all the soldiers back into the workplace, uh, so we had to we sent our kids off to college, you know, get an education. We had an affluence, and we could do that. But then the kids had part-time jobs, and the kids made money, and the kids owned cars, and the kids bought uh, long-playing records or 45s and so forth. And suddenly American culture and the whole human race had to deal with adolescent, young adult uh, children who were not married but who were sexually act mature and therefore sexually active. And we had to deal with the whole new species of sexually active teenagers. Romeo and Juliet never had the problem. They were 13 and 15 when they got married. Right. What do you say to the movement that is coming from perhaps a more evangelical, evangelical Christian uh, side of things, uh, for instance, uh, there's a strong movement towards, uh, uh, what do they call it, love, true love waits, where they're encouraging... Right, right. Uh, right. abstinence only. Right. Well, Romeo and Juliet got married at 15 and 13. At that time, 500, 600 years ago, the average European boy uh, reached sexual maturity at 20 and the girl at about 18. So they got married, and four, five, six years later, they reached sexual maturity. Today, it's the exact reverse. We reach sexual maturity at 10 or 11 or 12, and we get married in our late 20s. So we've got to deal with the sexually active uh, young adult and teenager. Um, but in, our, in the history of our society, we've always had ways of um, exceptions to the premarital abstinence philosophy. The Puritans had bundling. Which is? On a, well, put it this way. Uh, the Puritans were farmers on a frontier. And as they moved west... Uh, they had to be sure, when, when a young man got married, he had to be sure that his wife 
could produce children to work on the farm because that was the only way the farm frontier could survive. So when he went courting on a Friday afternoon, his father would tell him to go home to the log cabin and clean up and uh, hop on the plow horse ride over 10 miles to visit Sarah, whom they had met at church. And uh, he would get there before, you know, late afternoon, uh, visit with the family and have dinner with the family. And after dinner, everybody went to bed because you couldn't flip on the electric lights and whale oil was expensive. And so the young man would not ride back home through the woods in the dark. He would stay overnight and take off his shoes. His girlfriend would take off her shoes. They would get into a single bed in the corner of the log cabin and pull a curtain around it for a little privacy. And they'd sleep together and talk and so forth. And somewhere along the line, when they would start bundling, the mother would have made a uh, couple of potato sacks, sewn, sewn them together, so that the young woman could get into those, into that potato sack and tie it under her armpits, or they'd have a little jagged board that would slip in between the boy and the girl as they bundled. And George Washington said, hey, I still remember with fond recollection the night Martha and I jumped the board. <laughs> and Washington Irving talked about uh, the wisdom of the colonists who had this wonderful custom of bundling that produced all kinds of illegitimate vast brats uh, without benefit of law or clergy. And, you know, he... Washington Irving said this is what made America great was premarital sex bundling and uh, and if, in Europe among the Bavarian Lutherans and Catholics and up in the Scandinavian region all of them farm regions there were all kinds of customs and rituals for premarital sex that would allow a young couple to make sure that yes the bride-to-be can produce kids to work on the farm well, you're saying that once the uh, once the girl got pregnant, though, there would be a marriage, right? Yeah, but she would pick who she wanted and didn't have to be the father of the child. Ah. That, that really wasn't important. Because if the husband then, uh, well, if she's pregnant by the man that she chooses to marry, there's no problem. If she picks another fella who is not the biological father of the child and may be infertile, that's okay because they would hire a baby maker, a man from the village to, or town to come out and uh, sleep with the wife and get her pregnant. It was, you know, a simple way of doing what we now do with artificial insemination in, embry in uh, frozen sperm. In other words, if you look at the history of our Jewish and Christian tradition, you can find all kinds of variations in premarital sex, in the patterns of marriage. In and, and, and in the uh, last couple of centuries, wasn't uh, visiting a brothel a, a gentleman's pastime? Yes, but there were other variations that were even more structured and very much part of uh, the of our religious tradition. 
in Oneida, New York, we had a, for 50 years, a group of Methodists who practiced group marriage, the Oneida community. Very successful 50-year experiment with group marriage. There were the Mormons in their polygyny. Uh, there was George Rapp and, and Harmony Farm and the Amana community, which ended up, you know, being commercialized as Amana refrigerators and air conditioners. But originally they were an experiment in utopian marriage and part of our religious tradition. Uh, very quick, very quickly, Doctor, we're running out of time, yep. but uh, what I'd like to do is uh, have you talk about your website for just a moment and also about your book as to your latest book, The Encyclopedia of Sex, uh, where people can get a hold of them. Okay, let's uh, do the Encyclopedia of Sex, which is actually, it's called the International Encyclopedia of Sexuality. And I edited it. It was written by 250 uh, sexual scholars around the world, and I gave them a standard line outline in each country and said, I want to know about every aspect of uh, ethnic and religious influences on sex, sex education in your country, uh, masturbation in your country, uh, marital and premarital and postmarital and extramarital, heterosexual relationships, gay and lesbian relationships, um, abortion, contraception, um, sexual assault, coercive sex, rape, incest, and so forth. I want to know about all of these different aspects in every one of these 51 countries. And so the International Encyclopedia of Sexuality was published by Continuum Press in New York or Continuum International in New York City, and the first three volumes came out in 1997. A fourth volume with 18 more countries just came out about a month ago, and I'm working on a fifth volume. So that's the International Encyclopedia of Sexuality. Um, the uh, We have a website associated with that where... Uh, people can go and get updates on the different countries. And that we're just in the process of developing. Uh, and I also uh, work uh, providing news items for uh, www.theposition.com, which is the website of the Museum of Sex, which is being developed in New York City and probably will open within a year. All right. Well, Dr. Francoeur, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, the topic that it is, we can't let you go too far away, so we're going to uh, talk to you again next week. Fine. My name is Fred Stella. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. Please join us again next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of 
Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, and welcome to another edition of Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. Remember that commercial of a decade or so ago, the one that said that this car isn't your dad's Oldsmobile anymore? Well, today, you might say that this isn't your dad's sexuality anymore, uh, or at least what we thought was dad's sexuality. Last week, we spoke to Dr. Robert Francoeur about sexuality and spirituality. And if you thought your Baltimore catechism was the last word on the subject, you may find this a bit interesting. Uh, Dr. Francoeur is also Father Francoeur. He is a Catholic priest. He is married. He has a Ph.D. who has published a number of articles and books on the subject. And he edits a website that specializes in themes of sexuality and spirituality. Today we continue talking to him about sex, love, and marriage in the 21st century, the next sexual revolution. And uh, real quick, just to talk to anybody who has, was not with us uh, last uh, last week, uh, Robert Francoeur, again, is a fully-fledged Roman Catholic priest, and he is married. He gave us the, the story on that last week, but essentially it was just a, a, a bookkeeping error, you might say, that, that uh, allowed you to uh, stay in the order, eh? Right. Okay. It, but it was just, uh, you know, at that time in the 1960s, a lot of priests were asking for permission from the Vatican to get married and re and not, you know, continuing as priests. And I asked to get married and continue working as a priest, and they granted it by mistake. <laughs> and now let's talk about some of the things that uh, we, well, let's continue with the theme we were talking about last week. Uh, when we uh, stopped our conversation back then, we were talking about the misconception that the olden days of America, from the Puritans all the way on into the 50s and 60s, uh, basically was a myth. The idea that people were pure until marriage more often than not. The idea that uh, there is uh, this, this ideal family and the uh, man and the wife in that family it never had any sort of uh, sexual stimulation uh, beyond the, the uh, marriage bed. And uh, you've given us a couple of interesting uh, uh, takes on that. Now let's talk about this, uh, this one work, Sex, Love, and Marriage in the 21st Century, The Next Sexual Revolution, which you edited. Now, is this part of the uh, encyclopedia that we no. talked about? Okay, this no, is this, this is a, a separate book uh, that came about Oh, several years ago when I was invited to a an ecumenical retreat center in the Pocono Mountains and uh, I received a phone call from a, 
friend that I've worked with on different lifestyles and looking at the history of sex and marriage for many years, and Rusty called me up and said, would I please come out to the Poconos Friday night for dinner and then uh, discussion on Saturday? And I said, fine, you know. Didn't ask what the topic was, but he said, you'll find it interesting. When I got there, I found about a dozen and a half um, members of the clergy from all different traditions, uh, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, and uh, the we had a nice dinner, and after dinner we sat around in the living room, and uh, Rusty uh, introduced us all. Some of them I knew, some of them I had never met, uh, and had no idea who they were, but Basically, what they came down to and shared the experience that they had and the problem they had, which was they uh, their churches were very liberal churches and had become quite comfortable with responsible premarital sexual activity. You know, if, if people can't abstain in the congregation and they become sexually involved with someone, then they should be responsible, use contraception, avoid STDs, and avoid unwanted pregnancies. So that was not a problem for any of these clergy. Uh, the other issue of uh, same-sex relationships, homosexual and lesbian relationships, most of them were in churches that have been openly dealing with that and Anglican, uh, two Anglican theologians or pastors, for instance, um, who in their church tradition were witnessing gay unions. So that was not a problem for any of them. What they did find a problem was, and as one of the ministers said, uh, he was sitting in his rectory and a, a couple came in for some marriage counseling and, uh, uh, they sat down with the pastor and explained that they had been married for 18 years or something and had a very good marriage and uh, wonderful children and everything. But for the last eight or nine years, the wife had been sexually involved with the husband's knowledge, but sexually involved with a colleague at work and going on business trips with him and so forth. And they found this a very positive experience, but they could not, they were still uneasy and uncomfortable about it, and they couldn't talk about it with their friends and neighbors, so they came to the pastor to talk and get his input. And after he talked with them for some time, it came to the conclusion, well, you know, uh, I can support your lifestyle. It's not traditional. It's not customary. But within the Jewish and Christian tradition of covenanting a marriage, uh, using a covenant to define the marriage, uh, I can understand and support you. But the pa this particular minister said, but I'm sitting there in the same situation with the organist in my church and my wife knowing about it, and uh, we've got to do something to minister to these people who are exploring new patterns of marriage that meet their needs in this time of radical changing society. And all of the other ministers and priests and so forth, and one nun and a couple of rabbis said, hey, you know, we've all got that same experience because we're involved 
in some kind of unconventional marriage or relationship. And they decided to write their stories, most of them anonymously, some of them with their real names. And uh, they asked me if I would edit, because of my work with Eve's New Rib and another book I wrote in 1974 called Hot and Cool Sex, Cultures in Conflict, they asked me to edit the book. And I said, fine, a great, great idea. We came up with 45 stories, boiled it down to 22, and eventually published the book with an introduction and a conclusion and so forth, uh, published by iUniverse, an online uh, on-demand on publisher, iUniverse.com. And, every- and it's, it's, you know, it's a very candid, open, it talks about failures and successes and problems and joys and so forth, so... It was the first attempt to get church leaders to deal with diversity in marriage. And what um, what do you think is your answer when people say, well, let's talk about the morality of this. The fact that it's happening is one thing. The morality and the ethics right. are the other. What is your answer for, for them? Uh, there I have to admit there is a real split in... American society and also in our religious traditions. There are people who uh, hold to what I call a fixed worldview. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and set up marriage, and women were to bear their children in pain, and Adam was to work in the sweat of his brow, and there were very clear archetypes and myths about what marriage should be and so forth and what the roles of men and women were uh, there's that fixed worldview and within that worldview we should never have women priests or ministers uh, we should have only heterosexual sexually exclusive marriage and so forth There's a different way of looking at the world, which is very common among all of the churches except uh, the uh, fundamentalist, uh, conservative, evangelical churches. Those churches follow the fixed worldview. And in most of the mainstream churches you have, the majority of people are what I call uh, process theology. They know their biblical tradition, they value their uh, religious tradition, but they use it as a guide to working out uh, their moral relationships in this world today. And the Catholic Theological Society report of 1977, for instance, uh, talking about premarital sex, it said, if it is in a committed relationship, looking forward to marriage. Uh, and if it is responsible and avoids unwanted pregnancy and STDs, sexual diseases, then it can be a moral and positive relationship. And in terms of gay and lesbian unions, the uh, Catholic Theological Society report again took this process view and said 
if there is true love and commitment and responsibility in the relationship of two men or two women, if that is there and it is uh, self-fulfilling and enriches the other person and so forth, then God is there. Where love is, God is. But now that never made it to the pews, did it? Well, the Pope uh, immediately stomped on the American Catholic theologians for doing this, but I think a lot of Catholics uh, have are living that kind of a philosophy. I have a gay brother um, who's been monogamous in a relationship for 20, 30 years. And I know a lot of other people uh, in all the religious traditions who um, have gay and lesbian relatives or family members who are in long-term relationships. And even in, in the Episcopal Church, uh, they will ordain gay and lesbian clergy to the ministry. So there's a real split, and it goes back uh, 2,000 years, because every major debate over morality in Western civilization has in some way involved the difference between people who follow an evolutionary process changing uh, view of the world and those who think of it in terms of absolute fixed Garden of Eden uh, unchanging doctrine. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Dr. Robert Francoeur, and we're talking about sexuality and religion. Well, Doctor, you're obviously very well versed, very well read in the in different cultures and different religions. Are there any aspects of the other world religions that you think that Jews and Christians, which being the majority religions here in the United States, uh, do you think there's anything we can learn from them in the area of sexuality? I can think of one point right offhand, uh, because I've just been reading uh, several Protestant theologians. Uh, uh, Christine Gudorf has written a wonderful book called Body, Sex, and Pleasure, and uh, she's an associate professor of religion at Florida International University in this book, and, and Rosemary Ruther, a Catholic theologian, uh, both of them uh, spend a lot of time talking about the problem that Christian theology has in dealing with sex that is engaged in for pleasure, simple, erotic, pleasurable sex. Um, the vast majority of sex, for old, at least for the last hundred years, has been engaged in not for reproduction. The theologians say sex is for procreation. But with people having one or two kids and living to be a hundred, uh, a lot of sex is going on without it, you know, being procreative. It's engaged in for love, for pleasure, for whatever. And uh, in the Eastern traditions, in the Hindu and Buddhist tantric yoga traditions, uh, they have a whole philosophy and theology of sex, pleasurable, non-procreative sex being a path to transcendence and a path to union with the God. 
Western civilization doesn't have that. Our biblic, our Bible, has one book, uh, the Song of Songs, or Solomon's Song, which deals with sex in a very positive, pleasurable way. But very quickly after that became part of the canon of the Bible, the theologians made very definite moves to get the sex out of that and describe that as the faithful Christian uh, in relationship with God. In other words, they eliminated the sex, the erotic, and the passion. And so in, in Judeo-Christian tradition, we don't, have a very, we don't have a positive view of sex. And we haven't integrated it into our spirituality. Do you ever uh, interview people personally for your books? Uh, informally, I'm doing that all the time. Uh, when I write a, uh, I'm just writing an article on uh, religious myths about sex, marriage, and family that deals with myths about premarital sex and divorce and remarriage and abortion and contraception and in four weeks of writing that article, I sent it out by email to three dozen friends and colleagues and said, what do you think of this? Where am I off base? You know, um, what, can, what do I have to add to make this clearer and so forth? Or, you know, is this just a bunch of BS? Well, my, my point is, when you are interviewing these people, do you ever come across somebody who leads the kind of of a life sexually and maritally that harkens back to the uh, so-called mythic years of the 50s and 60s do you ever do you oh, ever... yeah yeah there's a lot of people out there that uh you know i would say probably today the nuclear family uh, uh sexually exclusive uh nuclear family with the wife being the uh, domestic support system and the husband, the breadwinner, and a couple of kids. That probably is about 8 or 10% of uh, the households in this country. So it's still there, and it always will be. And there will always be the other variations, some of them positive, some of them destructive. I mean, we do have a 50% divorce rate. And estimates of extramarital sex range anywhere from 20 to 70% in a lifetime. Uh, you know, we've always, my point is that we've always had a very diverse society, but we don't talk about it and we don't recognize it because then it will encourage people to break with the absolute norm. Do you see a change of laws here in the United States, for instance? Uh, may I guess that group marriage is illegal here? Am, am I correct in that? Or, uh, or yeah. Okay. Polygamy, polygyny, multiple wives, probably about 80,000 Mormons out in the Southwest uh, practices. Recently, uh, the state of Utah has taken a couple of men <clears throat> to trial for uh, practicing uh, polygyny. And one fellow was recently convicted of having five wives. And I remember that. I don't know whether he's in prison now or not. But, uh, yeah, there, 
Uh, no, my, my point is that, or my question is, do you see uh, a change in the legal code coming down the pike anytime sooner, or, or is that far away? Well, a very interesting one that nobody talks about is Louisiana, Arkansas, and I believe uh, Oklahoma have passed laws uh, recognizing two kinds of marriage. There's an ordinary marriage, which you can get into very easily. Uh, go to the Justice of the Peace or to a local minister, get married, and fine. Uh, five, ten years later, if the marriage hits rough times and you decide to get a divorce, it's very easy to get a divorce. That's the kind of marriage we have everywhere in the United States. But those three states have become concerned about the very, very high divorce rate in the Bible Belt. And so they have taken action by passing a law that sets up a more difficult kind of marriage, what they call a covenant marriage. In the Protestant tradition, the, the, and in the Jewish tradition, the idea of a covenant, the very strict uh, bond between the husband and wife. And you cannot, if you have that kind of a marriage, you have to go through a year of marriage counseling before you get married, and you cannot get divorced, you can't have a no-fault divorce. You have to go through marriage counseling to try and save the marriage. And if, if that doesn't work out, then the state will grant you a divorce uh, six months or a year later, after there's no chance of reconciliation. So already in three states, we have uh, two kinds of heterosexual marriage. And I haven't seen any research studies on, you know, how many people choose the regular marriage or how many choose the covenant marriage. Right. And in Vermont, we have the civil unions. Right. And, and in Vermont, we have the civil union. And probably a few other states in the next year or so will make that move. Uh, about a dozen European countries have already recognized uh, gay and lesbian unions. And Denmark, uh, Denmark and the Netherlands have uh, approved gay marriages. And at the same time, there are several states uh, that still have on the books, including our own Michigan here, uh, where sodomy is still illegal, which means, which includes heterosexual couples as well as gay couples. Right. That's one of those laws that none of the politicians want to fight. You know, call for its. Uh, removal from the uh, code of law, uh, but nobody's going to enforce it. Uh, you know, there there was a Supreme Court case down in... Uh, Georgia, I think. Georgia, uh, Bauer versus Hardwick, in which uh, a gay couple, a gay fellow, was charged with sodomy uh, in his own private bedroom, but... Uh, and he was found guilty, but never fined or never sent to prison. And it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, Georgia has a perfect right to have a law banning sodomy for both, and by sodomy I mean either oral or anal sex, for uh, heterosexual couples as well as uh, homosexual couples. And nobody's challenged that since, eh? No. It, a lot of times we just let we just ignore the laws 
because it's too much trouble to get them off of the books. Sure. You know, what politician, you know, 80% of young people getting married have been guilty of fornication. Well, and what's that uh, percentage again? About 80%. Mm-hmm. At, at least 70, probably 80%. I don't trust the surveys very much. But, you know, three quor- let's say three quarters of young Americans or of Americans who get married have had sexual intercourse already with that partner. Uh, is any... Uh, Legislator going to get up and say, "Look, we've got this law banning fornication. Uh, no, it hasn't been prosecuted in 60 years. Uh, let's get it off of the books." And his career would be shot because his opponent in the next election would say, "This guy's in favor of fornication. He's soft on sex. He's soft on <laughs> sex, right? He's a little Viagra." <laughs> Uh, listen, but before we uh, we wrap this up, uh, Doctor Francoeur, um, what would you say if you wanted to capsulize your your real vision for somebody who wants to be able to express their sexuality and have a vital spiritual life? What what do you say? Find someone within their own religious tradition who is comfortable with sex and can refer them to books on spirituality and sexuality, and there are a lot of them out there. Uh, don't get involved with someone with a fundamentalist uh, fixed worldview uh, that is quoting the Bible all the time because it's their interpretation of the Bible uh, that they're trying to impose. Uh, there's a, There are organizations, uh, magazines, there's a uh, sexuality in the spirit magazine and so forth. Um, Going on the web, typing in sex and spirituality, uh, you'll find a lot of junk, but there's a lot of good stuff out there. And uh, let's talk about your website uh, real quick. Well, our website right now is just sort of in, in, in limbo like I am. Uh, in one sense, and that we're in transition, and when the museum starts up, then the online theposition.com will be back uh, in full force. Right now, it's sort of limping along with my providing uh, news items uh, several times a week, and so we're not updating it the way we used to, but we are uh, rerunning and reposting uh, a lot of the very valuable stories. We had uh, a whole series of columns by Bishop John Shelby Spong, the Episcopalian uh, Bishop of New Jersey, who retired recently and writes a lot on sex and religion. And uh, Bishop Spong's uh, postings on theposition.com are very interesting. And I've, I do a geosex column and a future sex column uh, you know, that they're still worth reading. Well, Dr. Francoeur, thank you so very much for being with us here today on Common Threads. Good being with you. It's Dr. Robert Francoeur, and this is Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again next week. Bye-bye. All set. All set. 
Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads.